Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussions, news, and interviews, presenting the film scene with Ileana Douglas. Ileana is an actress, writer, author, and film historian with a need to discuss movies that borders on obsession. You'll learn the history of movies one great story at a time. The film scene is the deep cuts of movie podcasts, featuring movies we love by the people who made them. And now, Ileana Douglas. Why, hello, everyone. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. I know. It's Friday. We're not used to this. I'm very excited yeah. uh, to be here. We've got Brian Koppelman on the show it's So exciting. Brian right now is Skyping in from New York, and yep. he's quietly watching as we talk about him, and he's not allowed to talk until we say his name. So, uh, Brian, I'm we're excited. so excited to have you. Excited but nervous. I said I, I, I had a Brian Koppelman Film Festival. That's good. Week. That's good. You don't usually get nervous for guests, Ileana. Or do no. you, and you just hide it? I think it's because I watched uh, all of his uh, six-second vines at one time <laughs> and felt like, I don't know, I spent the last years being unproductive. <laughs> I, I get Well, of course, you guys know Brian no. Koppelman. You know his work. Uh, most prominently right now, he's created and showrunning Billions, which is on Showtime. Incredible show. But, of course, he's also the writer of Rounders. Really fun movie. Ocean's 13. Walking Tall. Knock he, Around Guys. Knock Around Guys. With Dennis Hopper. My personal favorite, The Girlfriend Experience, which, which I'm super excited to, to talk about as Solitary well. Solitary Man. It's incredible filmography. And if you're, you guys are podcasters, so you also know Brian's podcast at the moment. Really, really cool show. We'll be talking about all of it today. I know. I can't wait. So, uh, hi, Brian. Uh, thank you so much for being here. The first question. Awesome. Oh, good. We're glad to have you, Brian. The number one question I wanted to ask is: is uh, how is Bobby Axelrod's portfolio do, doing today? <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's a really good question. <laughs> like, um, what, what I'll are, say that that he, uh, if anyone would have known in advance all of the <laughs> coronavirus stats, yeah, before our government knew, I mean, Ax would have known. He He'd have Taylor out there trying to figure it out. I just want to say. All those credits um, are with my lifelong best friend and creative partner, David Levine. So yes. all that stuff, David we Levine. run the show together and do all the stuff together. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, are there uh, the uh, so, OK, I'm not going to get into myself. I want to go back to what I always ask people is, uh, do you remember the first movie you saw and who took you to see it? So I'm sure that there were movies before this, but the first real going to a movie experience that I had that really um, affected me. And I know you'll love this one. And it's true. One Saturday, my dad, uh, I guess I was six years old or seven. My dad said, we're going to go see a movie today in New York City. And I grew up in Long Island. And the idea of going to the city was always, a, you know, it was always a big deal. And uh, he said, we're going to go there. And then I'm going to take you to my favorite place to eat lunch. And he took me in to see an, an early morning screening at a revival house of modern times. Oh, wow. And it was incredible. So the drive in, he's telling me, listen, this is a silent movie. And he and I used to watch Westerns at home all the time uh -huh. and gangster movies, even from a very young age. And I was highly verbal. You know, if you you watch our stuff, Dave and I are writers as directors. When we direct and producers, it's highly sort of verbal stuff the way we uh, you know, it's sort of how we appreciate stuff. So I remember my dad saying, you know, this film is silent. There's, uh, in, and he told me the whole thing, you know, if you would have gone to see this when it came out, there would have been an orchestra playing or a small band, depending right. where you saw it. And he, he walked me through it. And you know, that moment in the movie when Chaplin starts getting fed the equipment, you know, the nuts and bolts. And yeah. all that, I, I mean, you can imagine being seven years old. And uh, and seeing that it was one of the signal days of my childhood, really, you know, uh, because being with your father and sharing something like that. Yes. Um, and then going to Barney Greengrass where we went afterwards. It's like just a perfect day. Right. So it's the, seared in, in my memory. Yeah. The whole experience. So my family, too, that was we'd argue all the time. But then we'd, you know, go see a movie and then go to Friendly's ice cream afterwards. Friendly's. And, you know, my father, did you understand? My my father would insist on taking us to European sort of really intellectual movies and then <laughs> quizzing us if we understood it. Did you understand yeah. Joseph Losey's The Servant? You know, right. I we had no art. There were no art house theaters. There was one art house theater um, sort of sort of near my house. I mean, I grew up and mostly I watched Westerns, funny movies and 
gangster films and crime movies. You know, that mm. that's really what I was interested in as a child, largely because my dad and I would watch. And then Dave and I met when we were 15 and together started watching all this stuff. It really wasn't until I saw She's Gotta Have It mm. when I was um, in college, 19, mm-hmm. that everything flipped for me. I saw She's Gotta Have It uh, and Raising Arizona, like within um, a short window, because, you know, Spike's movie rolled out various cities so it had already done that whole run in new york so we'd heard about it in boston and i remember going to see it and my whole world exploded right right? because if you've never seen a film like that i uh and i was at the perfect age to appreciate that dialogue to appreciate what he did with the camera those performances i understood that he was doing something structurally that i hadn't really seen before even though a lot of people killed him for the color sequence, I remember loving it and feeling like it was incredibly bold. And then shortly thereafter, I saw Raising Arizona. And those two things just completely shifted the world for me. Those were the movies that, you know, and by then I'd already ha- had already seen my favorite films of my childhood. I-, I would watch them obsessively over and over again. I just, I, I went very deep on the stuff I liked but until I was 19, I didn't go wide. I, I stayed in a couple of lanes. But then once I saw those movies, I was off to the races. You know, then you're watching everything you can get your hands on. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about your dad because my, um, you know, you always say in your, in your work about right what fascinates you. And what has always fascinated me, and I don't know why because I did not live through this time, but was the Brill Building era and the world of Don. I mean, and so in reading about your father, I became just incredibly fascinated with that. He worked with Carol King, Neil Sedaka, Barry Mann, and Cynthia Whale, all people that when I did this movie, Grace of My Heart, and I worked at the Brill Building. So I was in heaven working at the Brill Building. But, But just talk about your dad and who he was and some of the people that he worked with. Yeah, for sure. I mean, he's uh, I spoke to him this morning. He's about to turn 80 and he's he's great. Uh, my dad was a songwriter who then became a music publisher and record producer. And so the even though um, I, as I say we didn't watch a lot of art house movies, we were music fanatics. And that's I grew up in recording studios. I mean, we would go I would spend, you know, uh, all night long with him in recording studios from when I was very little. Some of the greatest memories you could have. So my dad, you know, he discovered groups like Love and Spoonful. He found the song Happy Together for the Turtles. He produced or executive produced like eight Barbra Streisand albums. So I got to be around some incredibly amazing stuff as a child where um, watching him talk to singers was just an incredibly invaluable experience as far as learning how to talk to actors. You know, mm-hmm. just coaxing a performance out of a lead singer is even way more difficult. They're way more fragile most of the mm-hmm. time. And, um, you know, because if, if they lose confidence and they can't hit notes, it can spiral in a way that's hard to describe. And so that stuff was incredible for me. My father's sort of generosity to me in that way is a beautiful thing. So I'm curious, so you never did, did, did you ever have thoughts of doing a movie about that era, that music era? I mean, uh, you know, my, my pal Doug McGrath wrote beautiful and uh, he's a brilliant writer. And, um, no, I mean, they, I think they did it as far as that era went. Um, I had, Dave and I had thought about making a movie about the record business in the eighties. We almost were the showrunners for vinyl and, um, that in the end that didn't work out, but, uh, I wish you were, <laughs> I think it's, it's, it's fine. I think the, the fuel of yeah. uh, that not happening let yeah. us, let us to really want to make billions. But um, yeah, it, I, I would have liked to sort of take on that challenge in a way because I did live it and because I, I watched it so closely. I think it's hard, though. I think it's really hard to tell that kind of story. Yeah, it just I guess, you know, again, I'm fascinated by it, just the partnerships and the, the husband and wife teams is the whole elements of it. And then also the element which it sounds like your father got a little bit into this, too, which is when the music industry moved to California and everything shifted and the Beatles came in and people had instruments and the songwriters were no longer needed. And so that fascinates me. Oh, it's all. Yes. Uh, it's only really country music now and some pop music where there is a, a difference between the 
songwriter and the singer, you know, mm-hmm. um, most people write their own songs. Uh, yeah. I mean, we lived in New York. They wanted to raise us here. Sometimes I would go on trips with him to LA and then I would get to go to this recording studio there. And, Oh, he took me. I saw, I don't know as you did. I did see a couple of movies too early. Uh, <laughs> I saw, yes, he took, me, he took me to see, we went on a trip to LA because he, I was like off from school for a week and he had to go make a record and he asked my mom, uh, and I guess my sister stayed home with my mom and they were much too, they were really young. Like I was eight, they were six and four. And he took me to LA and we went and saw Tommy in the movie theater. And I, I was, maybe I was eight years old. I was not nine. Yeah. And that was just a lot. To, that, and then we went to, we went to Mateo's afterwards, but that was just a lot to, uh, Mateo's, which is the one with the air, the train that goes around. I think in that's LA, Ma- like, yeah. I think yeah. that's Mateo's. I don't know if it exists okay, anymore, but yeah, Mateo's. no, it might not. But it did. I know you you've been there for sure. Yeah. Uh, and uh, but I remember seeing Tommy, and, and that was a lot to. That was I a know, and Margaret. Yeah. It's so funny because I had the same thing. I, I went with my dad, and he was very embarrassed and got up and left. <laughs> oh really. <laughs> Yeah, he, got, he was mortified. He left. Well, I was so fascinated by with Elton John. Oh, right? as, me too. As an eight-year-old, to Elton with the boots and the whole thing singing Pinball Wizard. And yeah. I think I've never, I've gone back and watched pretty much you know all of those movies that I, I watched as a kid. Yeah. But I don't think I've ever gone back and seen all of Tommy. I like where I have it in my head. Right. I know the, I know the album by heart, the, both the soundtrack and the Who's original but I don't think I've ever made myself watch the movie again. I want to remember it as fucked up right. thing as it felt to me yeah. then because it stirred me up as only a movie can for so long. You yeah. Know? Well, I think what too, I think the only reason I went to the movie is because of Elton John. I think I was in, that's what would bring me to a movie. Like, you know, I convinced my grandmother to take me to cruising. Because <laughs> you know, I saw Al Pacino and then like 15 minutes in, she was like, we're not seeing this movie, drag me out, you know. So that's what would happen is I, I didn't, you know, because I was too young. It was just like any movie, any time I just wanted to, um, you know, to go there, to go in there. Um, I want to talk about your six second videos. I, now, when they were out. Did were they only? I sort of barely remember Vine because it was it came and went. Mm-hmm. But so what's on YouTube now is the entirety of all of them, which is really fascinating. I sent it I to guess, a couple yeah. people to watch the whole thing. That's crazy. Um, <laughs> yeah, I made one of those a day for like three hundred and sixty days or something like that because I I really had this notion that everyone was making this idea of trying to write too complicated. Particularly, I thought there were a lot of hucksters, like, you know, yes. giving seminars at the Radisson. And uh, anytime someone's trying to get you to go to a Radisson uh, seminar, <laughs> you, should, you should, I mean, even though in Fargo, they see a Radisson, that's nice, and it is, but I don't know that you want to pay someone to give you a genre workshop uh, in a seminar. And so I would get these questions on Twitter from people asking me, uh, uh, something they'd learned in one of these seminars and saying, do I have to do this? And, I, and so finally, I just started talking into my phone on Vine and then it just took off, you know, like there were 60 million views of that thing yeah. that on Vine. And um, because my, the central message was you don't need someone else to give you permission right. to do something creative. Mm. If you want to do something creative, you can do it. We, we, we all in some way want some authority figure to tell us we're special enough. Mm-hmm. We're good enough. We have something to offer. But the truth is nobody can – there's no scepter someone can touch you with that uh, imbues you with uh, this uh, ability or desire. If you have this crazy desire to do this stuff, I want you to try and work with rigor at it. And that was the whole thing I was trying to talk about was, look, I'm not saying go live your dream uh, because it's not easy. But if this is something that's killing you to not do – Fucking do it. Mm-hmm. But no, you're going to have to work incredibly hard every single day. Uh, so say, and I, and I would realize things like one page a day, even if you took weekends off, you are still going to have 260 pages. Right. And once you start, you're not going to want to take the weekends off. And you're, you could write three screenplays in a year. You could write a novel in a year. And also once you start, you won't really just write one page a day. Mm-hmm. So, 
I was trying to help tell people like in one hour a day, you can, and it doesn't be writing. If you want to learn to be a dancer, spend one hour a day, find a little place off in a corner and start dancing. Nobody has to tell you it's okay. And I would also try to encourage people, you know, you know who in your life is secretly, uh, doesn't want you to succeed because they're worried they'll look bad. Mm-hmm. So, you know, don't tell them what you want to do. Don't give them the chance to tell you your dream is foolish. And so I started talking about this stuff. Uh, and, and it was at a weird time in my own career. You know, it was a, a moment after I'd had a movie come out that had done really poorly and gotten a, a critical drubbing. And I'm sure that as I was talking to people, I was talking to myself, telling mm-hmm. myself that this, you know, I didn't know that at the time, but when I look back on it, that was when I was trying to give myself some sense of momentum. And so I was probably, you know, when I would say something and I would get it reinforced from an artist I admired, it would send me forward. And, and, um, I found it to be a really special thing to do. And that's what led to my podcast, which, you know, continues that conversation. Right. Which talks about, you know, pivotal moments, uh, in your, in your life or in your career. Do you have what you, I feel like I've had a hundred, but do you have, have you had one? It's hard to pin down one pivotal moment. Sure. Well, my, I mean, my podcast is me asking other people for their moments, not my own. Well, um, now I'm asking. You know, I'm on yours, so I can. No, I'm saying it's not like if someone listens to mine, they're going to hear me going, well, once in 1974, uh, I remember because uh, I was third grade. And I mean, there's none of that. But, uh, well, yeah, I think a couple of them. I mean, the sort of central one for me is when I was 30 and I was a blocked writer, partially because I had spent a lifetime thinking artists were special. They were anointed by somebody. They knew how to dress a certain way or... Uh, they knew um, exactly what books or movies to read or watch, and and they were recognized by some authority figure. But I was 30. I had a young child at home. Amy and I did, and, and I wanted to be the kind of father who would tell him to uh, that he could be anything. And, she, and I realized I wasn't. I, I'd gotten to 29 years old without ever smoking a cigarette. Not an easy thing to do. I mean, I'd done plenty of drugs and all that, but I'd never smoked a cigarette. And suddenly I had a I was smoking a pack a day at 29 and I was eating double cheeseburgers and I was in a job where I was successful, but I was miserable. And it finally got to be too much. And I, I, I realized I had to find a way to fit to risk failing as an artist, you know, mm-hmm. and that's when I went to my best friend who was tending bar and I said, hey, we love movies so much. You're he with David was already writing. He was had written a novel that later got published and he was trying to write screenplays and and he said i'll write a screenplay with you you know and then soon thereafter i walked into a poker club and and called him and said um i think i know what we should write the movie about and then we started meeting every single morning before i'd go into work and he would be done tending bar uh we would meet every day and you know i don't have to tell you what happened uh the moment i started doing that work i felt alive in a way i hadn't right ever before and then whether the thing was going to get made or not or sell or not Man, that, that that hour and a half of doing the work, hard as it was, right? Because you don't know if it's any good and you're failing. As you know, doing any kind of art involves a lot of failure all the time. Right. You know, and right, you're always coming up short of the feeling you're trying to express. We mm-hmm. all are, all the time. Sometimes you hit it, but it takes so much to get to. But it didn't matter. The mere fact of doing it, the mere fact of these characters starting to come to life, uh, of, of seeing this structure layout of of that feeling of emptiness at the, at the, at the end of it you know uh i just knew well i'm gonna be doing this forever now what i hope i can make a career of it but i'm i'm never not gonna be doing this mm-hmm. and so you know I, I guess kept doing the things that got me to do it morning pages the way julia cameron describes and taking long walks and i added meditation into it i do tm twice a day and so everything i i do is to try to stoke uh to get what Stephen Pressfield calls the resistance out and to stoke the possibility that I can do some creative work that day. Yeah. I'm a big believer in thinking, uh, sort of, I always say the the moment you commit to something in a weird way, the universe will help you along, but you have to commit. And like you said, it's not even, it's just writing something saying, I know I have to write this thing. And then weirdly articles will suddenly pop up and you meet this person and it feels as if it has um, a destiny. I do believe in one of the things in your, you know, in that you talked about, which I do find is very hard to find people to read your work and criticize in a way that is not debilitating. 
to move the project forward um, without, you know, crushing you or saying, oh, I, oh, this reminds me, there's this show on HBO. It's just like this. You know, those are the words. You're so right. That's You're the, so, but you have to choose carefully. I mean, Julia Cameron talks about this great in the artist way. Yeah. You, know, you have to choose who are you going to entrust with your feelings, with your emotions. And right. that's a life. That's not an artist thing, really. Yeah. It's a life thing. I, I always tell people when you go home for Thanksgiving dinner, be really careful about who you tell your hopes to. Right. You know, if you know that your second cousin has always wished they could be an actor, don't say your car is packed and you're going to drive to California because <laughs> they're going to tell you the 40 reasons why you're going to fail. You know, let them send them a card when you get your first casting. I mean that, you know, so I, but this stuff's hard, man. And, 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 uh, we are so trained in, in, in a, a school system that's kind of mechanized to stay in our lane. And if you weren't cast in the junior musical or the junior high school musical or, you know, you didn't get the part you wanted in something or you wrote a piece uh, that you thought was creative for an English teacher and they wrote back and said, no, 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 you have to write a funnel uh, essay. It can crush you and it can take years to discover that and find a way to open up again. Mm-hmm. And but I also- it's worth it. It's worth it to do it. I think you can only do it by doing it. Mm. I, I agree with you. It's just a, uh, the, I always tell everybody and they laugh at me. You know, I, I wrote a book and I tell everybody that they should write a book, even if they're not going to publish it. And they laugh at me. And I said, you really, but because you remember so much more than you actually think and you, and you weirdly put together who you are and you go, 100%. I, 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 so right. You just got, when you, I constantly discover the way I feel about things by writing. Mm. Yeah. I would, things I would never have known points of view. And also when you're writing fiction, uh, you know, you're making up characters when you allow them to argue something out, you definitely find yourself within that argument. You just do. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's, so let's get to some of the movies. Uh, Rounders was a little bittersweet for me to watch the DP uh, Jean-Yves Escoffier. I, I love Jean-Yves. I love. He's Jean-Yves. one of the most, he was one of the most brilliant, heartful uh, guys. And man, that movie looks beautiful. It's just a beautiful looking well, movie. Those yellow, the way he, you know, Jean-Yves had this view of the outside that it, with these yellow lights and everything. And and I remember uh, Jean-Yves and Jean Dahl talking a lot about the way they were going to make New York at night look. And they, boy, did they do a beautiful. Yeah, they really did. Um, Uh, We were on set, Dave and I were on set every day of that movie. And as, as writers, we couldn't have asked for a better first experience mm -hmm. than that. Yeah, I can imagine. So the, uh, um, the, the overall film, the other thing that struck me was this was this era when all these great character-driven movies. I said, "Oh God, I remember movies like this." And John Turturro was always in them, and you know, you'd always have these. Uh, there was like not two characters; there was like six characters, so you could, you know, it was fun yeah. seeing Josh Mustel and all these little. Well, we, we, it was so much. It was so great to have Josh in that movie, uh, and then. Um, yeah, he's a, he's a great guy. I mean, he's a real poker player, Josh. So oh, he is. It was awesome. Inter- yeah. uh, so going into the movie, what, one of the th- things that I noticed, which is my theme, now I don't know if it's your theme or not, but I did pick up on this theme uh, in this particular one with uh, Matt Damon and Edward Norton as Worm, that this is a something that I've seen in a lot of movies uh, and I, I mentioned them to you, but before we were going to do the show, El Dorado, Mean Streets, even like Fredo and Michael Corleone, this idea that one, that the man, is, one guy's trying to do good and go on the straight and narrow and the, and the guy is a screw up, but they're friends from childhood and, and, and somehow it's really about their love relationship. And I was thinking as I was writing about it, even then double indemnity hit me with the great end of the scene where he says, I love you too. And how much I couldn't find. And what, so my question is twofold. One is, it's such a fascinating theme. And I learn a lot about men, you know, sometimes when people say, well, they really don't want to see that movie because it's a chick flick, or I really don't want to see that movie because it's a guy movie. I like seeing the movie so I can get, gain some insight 
into the world of how men think. And I think that rounders is very profound in the in the relationship that they have, the love relationship. So I was wondering if you could talk about that. Yeah, I mean, you're right on it, of course. I think the movie's about a few different things. and and But the crazy thing about Rounders is it it was not a, a success in the movie theater. It was there three weeks, and it, it wasn't a success. But, and this ties in directly to what you're asking, um, what David and I, it's, it's funny, uh, Pope of Greenwich Village, more than Mean Streets for us when we were that age. It was uh-huh. Pope, because... Hope, which was another version of Mean Streets, right? But for us, Mickey Rourke and Eric Roberts, yeah, for Young, that that movie was where that I guess that was a bigger influence directly uh-huh. at that age. Probably the Catholicism in Mean Streets was when we were at our formative time, not something that we necessarily related to. Later, we completely got that movie. Um, but a diner was really the movie for the, yeah. for the two of us. Diner was uh, all about what happens when you sort of leave that childhood uh, cocoon and then reconnect with those people. And can you find versions of yourselves that still fit? Mm -hmm. And if you can't and you have to leave that behind, what else are you leaving behind of of yourself? Right. And so that stuff was definitely all in in the movie, you know. And then also, though, here was a guy – Matt's character, who was, you know, in law school uh, at at night as I had been, and was faced with this question of deciding whether to try this crazy, reckless thing of becoming a poker player, even though everyone told him it was irrational, or Mm -hmm. choosing um, a safer path. Mm -hmm. And I think for David, for for both of us, that question at Dave, I think was 27 or 28, I was 29, 30 when we wrote it. And I mean, that's a pretty central question to, to, to people at that age. And our goal with the movie was to, to write a movie that guys, as you're saying, really, it was a guy, it was a film for guys like us, the way we watched rounders, we wanted them to watch our movie. And so it's so satisfying to me that now that movie is, you know, people, I get hundreds of questions every week uh, on the internet about that movie. Still, Uh, I go on, (laughs) podcast dedicated to it and <laughs> there are revival it's a it's an uh, people are obsessed with that film at 22 years later be, and they know every word i can't mm. go to any sort of gathering of guys from the age of 18 to 60 where they're not quoting the film at me be, because i think the two of us were so focused on making something that we would love and and, and in that way that that somehow what we wanted to put in it got out there to the people we wanted to receive it eventually i think on its i also think uh well the it to me it plays almost like a fable and and again it's a movie that it looks so beautiful that i think that that is what adds it's not just because that's going to be my next question is when you're when you write and then you're filming a movie that's wall-to-wall dialogue you know you there there has to be a way to make that artful yeah and and that's... Totally. Well, that's what was such an education to be with Jean Yves and John. Dahl. Yeah, and, and we've kept working with John. Dahl's directed um, four or five episodes of Billions, I and mean, we've worked with John on and off the whole, the whole time because, yeah, he taught us that. I mean, we we had a real film school experience being on that movie, and and in particular, we spent about two weeks before we started shooting with John, where he talked about just that, where he would say, "Okay, uh, this scene, we need to end the scene sooner." We need to put it there in this scene. And he would, what was great was he didn't bring in some pro. He didn't rewrite us. He would just put the questions to us. He would sit in these high back chairs at the Royalton, uh, in the lobby of the Royalton. That's where we were in New York making the film and, and by where that vodka bar was in the back. But we were in those high back chairs and um, we would just sit for hours at a time. And he would go every line of the script with us and he would say, you know, can that line be sharper? Are these two things redundant? What does that mean? Hey, I think this scene can end differently. And, and he said, you're going to see the difference between writing for writing and then writing to shoot something are entirely different. And at the end of this, if you pay attention, meaning at the end of a whole movie, you will understand how to how to write something that's shootable. Wow. And so, as you know, Elena, yeah. it's a huge difference. Totally. And totally. 
and we did. I mean, you, we did come out of that experience completely knowing the difference and learning how to put something on its feet in a real way. Um, the other question that I wanted to ask you is the, the the theme that often sort of pops up and then going all the way to billions is the father-son relationship, which sure. Martin Landau is not his father, but he certainly kind of represents a father-type figure. Maybe you disagree. Well, I would say, well, one, I, I don't, I, I, when artists, when people talk about their own themes, uh-huh. The truth is, I'm a bit of a deconstructionist. It, I, we don't know. <laughs> you know later. Right. It's for other people to sort of recognize it. So, um, sure, these things. I mean, I would say Solitary Man, which is really about a father and uh, uh, a daughter um, in, in many ways. You know, Michael Douglas's character, which for me is our best film and the one that critics are, like the most. Um, that really was about something we witnessed. I wrote that one, Dave, and I directed it together, but that was just about something that I witnessed, really, that started and someone I cared about. Mm -hmm. But of course, you're going to filter in, and Michael's character is definitely one who could have been in Billions or in Rounders or Knock Around Guys. I think the thing is, we're fascinated by the way people Mm self-mythologize. And I guess sometimes that comes in the form of uh, an older person who seems wise, sometimes they may be wise, but an older person who seems wise and a younger person trying to uh, learn their own lessons in, in that way. So that in uh, in Solitary Man, that's Jesse Eisenberg talking to Michael Douglas, right? And yes, in, in Rounders, that's Mar- Martin Lando's character who is actually wise uh, and Matt's character. The uh, okay, so I want to move to knock around guys with uh, Dennis. I just got to ask you like a fan question. What was Dennis Hopper like? I'm I'm it was unbelievable, obsessed unbelievable with Dennis. To get to work with Dennis, you know. I mean, did you know him well? I I got to know him. I, you know, he's a mystic. He my the name of my book is called I Blame Dennis Hopper. My parents saw the movie Easy Rider, and my dad quit his job and became a hippie and started acting like Dennis Hopper. So he it was like he was my father. And then I met him in a movie, and he played my father figure boyfriend in the movie. So it was one world. What movie was that? It was called uh, Search and Destroy. Perfect name for that. But um, <laughs> Millennium <laughs> Film. Sorry, I haven't seen that one. It's I'll a hard one. Though. It's a it's a art film uh, made by Avi Lerner, which ends up having mixed results. It's really difficult. Well, the Solitary Man, Avi Finance, Solitary Man, it was really, but we had Soderbergh was one of the producers and he really protected it, the movie. Yeah. Protected um, the movie. But uh, De- which, Dennis is a mystic. I mean, in my mind, he, he offered so much, but it was through talking to Dennis about things and his own life is so fascinating. And anytime I see him, you know, post, I feel like, you know, he started out in the studio system, then he did independent films, and then the end of his career, he was incredible. I, I think, you know, in... He, well, in Quentin's, in Quentin's movie, he was just off the chart. I mean, Tony Scott's movie, but really Quentin's movie. Yeah. It's, one of, it's so great that Dennis got to lay that down for another generation of people. Yeah. Know? And I just watched... Uh, did you go watch The Apocalypse Now? Oh. The last one? The yeah. newest one. It's so, I uh, saw it on the big I, screen. Me too. I went and saw the latest version on the big screen. In the yes. Ben Shankman, who's a great actor, and pal, we went and... um. Seeing Dennis up there really made me smile. Man. Oh, my God. He's a mystic. Um, what but, do you want me to say? That he's a wise man? It's the best. Yeah. Did he? Well, I saw him there with his smoking his cigar. And, I don't know. It just was like, I, I don't know. I, it was, it just must have been a, fu- you know, fun. I'm getting off the well, topic he teaching, of the movie. He but. was teaching all the, no, it was great. At one point, one actor went up, um, which means that they forgot their lines. Yeah. For people listening. And that's what that means. Um an actor went up in a scene and a young a kid, you know, a 25 year old and tried to call um, cut. And Dennis went, no, man, stay in it. Keep it going. Something magical is going to happen. You know, and he was like, no, kid, you got this is it. This is your alive right now. Yeah. You know, capture this. And it was awesome. You know, it was just great to watch him be so present and so in it in that way. Yeah. I felt it just a through line, you know, again, from. James Dean to Dennis Hopper to him being on the set, you know, it was that to me is like modern acting all sort of comes from, you know, Montgomery Clift and then Brando and then Dean 
And then that's it. Nothing has changed. Like if you look at Edward Norton, you know, everything like I, I find the parallels between those three actors. That's just my theory of all modern acting. And there I've said it. <laughs> no, I mean, where does could, Philip Seymour Hoffman fit, though? I see Philip. Oh, he's I, I definitely he's more the Paul Muni Spencer Tracy. You're right. He's the sideline intellectual. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't always fit, but most modern actors, James Franco comes to mind, you know, seem to fall. Like if you had a family tree of Paul Muni, you know, various actors, uh, it it starts to funnel into really the, you know, a, a modern type of acting. That's a whole other thing. I would, include, I would say with. the one person I would want to include in that who doesn't he, all actors love him and people love him. But I and I know he came up um, with those guys. But Hackman did do something totally different than everyone else. Yeah, that's true. I love I love Gene Hackman. And I think that there are other I think that Hackman's influence is pretty huge in a certain kind of actor like in Edward. And I yeah. think that Hackman has the ability, you know, the, the ability to project a certain kind of fierce intellect and verbal sharpness yeah. And the way he reigns in his anger, that's very specific. <laughs> that's, that's specific, you know. It's funny you say that. You know, my my grandfather worked with him. That he said it was his favorite actor he ever worked with. Of really? all of all the actors, and he worked with Paul Newman, and he he said Gene Hackman sure. was his favorite. Uh, he right. kept him on his, you know, kept him on his toes. Um, okay, before we get to billions, my last just because I love this movie, I love The Illusionist, which is another that sort of. I, I, but it did very well. But uh, man, I love that movie. That's another. That's Edward. I love anything about magic. I'm uh, and anything that's the turn of the century. Well, Neil Berger is a great writer director, and Dave and I um, had made Neil's first movie with him, and we produced that movie and and you know put Edward in it, and that's where we first got to meet Giamatti, uh, who obviously we have a long creative relationship with now, and. Um, it was a movie that was impossible to get made. It was my favorite thing about that is it not only did it do well, I mean, we made that movie for $14 million. It did a hundred million worldwide. And, um, but it was made with independent finance here and we never saw any of the money, but we did, <laughs> did do it. And, um, it was turned down at every step. The script was turned down. When we had the actors attached, it was turned down. When we screened it at Sundance, no distributor wanted to buy it. There was only one. It was one of those things where the whole time David and I were going, this is, fucking great and really commercial i've now cursed three times and i apologize <laughs> but, uh, but it's true that it is um uh hollywood bill goldman was right they never know and so that was a film that for us always had this ineffable quality to it these incredible performances this great writer director but it seemed too unconventional in a way for part of hollywood and it seemed too mainstream for another part of the business right and they thought it was tweener and we just knew it was a movie that would uh, just wildly appeal to people. And then Neil went on to make Limitless and yeah. uh, other big hit movies. It's a movie that for me just harkens back to like a uh, like a big MGM movie, you know, from the 40s or 50s. I love anything with mystery, romance, which is not a thing that people do that much anymore. It seemed to be very popular in the 40s and 50s. Kind of mystery, romance, gothic, yeah. turn of the century. I mean, it fits in, even though it's a completely different type of movie, but Gaslight, Ghost of Mrs. Muir, you know, anything that's uh, about well, the, yeah, anything that's about mystery and romance. And uh, I, I don't know. I love that movie. So I, I, I and I didn't even know you were had been a part of it when I started doing my research. I said, oh, I love that movie. All right. Let's get to Billions. Yes. Uh, I don't know if you know this, Brian. We actually uh, our sister network after Buzz TV covers Billions. We love that show. I do, um, I I love that show. It's hilarious. Great. Oh, thanks, man. I appreciate it. I watch it. Yeah. Um, do you feel like you were trying to comment when you were developing Billions? Were you trying to comment on like the state of capitalism, or were you thinking more about just telling a good story? We definitely were not only thinking about telling a good story. I mean, yeah. we noticed that that it seemed to us that uh, Americans had suddenly developed this incredible uh, affinity for uh, certain characteristics like uh, people with a certain kind of power, verbal acuity, a kind of thin but very sharp uh, intellect, 
and uh, they would forget real qualities of character that used to matter in exchange for those characteristics. And we noticed who were the most popular reality stars, you know, uh, the president and uh, Mark Cuban, who is a friend, but we and who I think is a great guy. Uh, but we, we, we noticed that we noticed these prosecutors uh, who were using uh, offices of the public good for their own personal good and felt like it was just incredibly fertile ground to set up this sort of conflict. And then we are going to follow the David Chase maxim of making sure it's entertaining. Uh, and because that, you know, we uh, we're not trying to serve you vitamins. We're trying to entertain you. But we absolutely uh, have always written about the world that we cared about and saw. We've always followed our curiosity. And um, this world, uh, as it existed, felt important to us and, and felt like the kind of thing that could sustain our curiosity for a very long time. Mm. Uh, I wanted to talk about the casting process when you were originally getting started. What I mean, you'd worked with Paul Giamatti before, but what were you looking for in the two main characters? They're in their dynamic, and then did they ever read opposite each other? Neither of them had to read. Uh, they were. Oh, I guess that's my world. <laughs> which is called? What's that? <laughs> I said, sorry, I guess that's my world. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, we just. I'm, uh, I'm self-deprecating. I'm kidding. We just called Paul. That's funny. We just called Paul. I'm here at Leona Douglas. You don't have to read. He's we from Connecticut, like me. And yeah, we just called Paul and said, uh, hey, we're sending you this thing. We want to do it uh, with you. So does he call and, up uh, and go, uh, okay, I'm sorry. I'm interrupting because I'm very excited. So <laughs> I, I, I'm, go back to what you were saying. Go back. We sent Paul an email yeah. and then got on the phone with him uh, and called his manager just to be professional. And yeah. um, he read it immediately. And said, all right, let's talk about this. We flew to L.A. the next day. We had dinner. I shook hands and that was it. Uh, and then Damien, originally we were told wouldn't do television again for a while. And then they had a showtime. Dame, David Nevins called and said, you know, I think I can get Damien to read this thing. If you guys would want to make the show with him. And we said, of course, we want to make the show with him. Mm -hmm. And Damien was harder because Paul we had a long, like real history with, you know. Right. Damien, it was a bunch of Skypes and meetings in person because he really knew Paul hadn't done this before a long running TV. I mean, Damien really knew that he was in for years of this if it went well. Right. And so I think he wanted to know, well, what are you guys thinking about modern capitalism and where do you think this fits and how do you want to shoot it? What do you think this guy dresses like and how do you think he and, yeah. you know, it was an amazing process uh, at, at the end of it again. We all shook hands and said, let's do this. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day for them, is it is it easy for them to take off these characters, you know, or? or is... No, I don't want to talk about their processes. you got to ask them. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, I, wanna, I do want to ask, though, specifically about Taylor. I think we've had Asia in studio before. If, for those of you who might not be watching Billions, Asia Kate Dillon plays Taylor, who's the first non-binary character on TV. So, uh that's been really meaningful, especially we have a huge LGBTQ plus audience on our other network. I, the thing I so appreciate about that portrayal is it's weaved so naturally into the fabric of the show. It doesn't feel like there's any kind of agenda pushing with the way that character is written. Can you speak to developing Taylor and sort of why yeah, you went we that? were not trying to, yeah, you're right. We were not trying to create some object lesson. Mm -hmm. We, we were, I mean the way originally we even, so I guess I was probably 50 I'm 53 and, and Dave's a year and a half younger than I am. And we didn't really know about this idea of gender non-binary people. And within a short time of one another, each of my kids, I had a kid in high school and a kid in college. And my daughter came home one day and said, at the beginning of this mod, every however many weeks, the teacher asked us all to tell our pronouns. And the teacher said, we're going to do it again in the beginning of the next mod. And somebody identified as as um, gender non-binary. I said, what does that mean? She explained it to me. And then my son was um, at Harvard and he went to a homeless shelter in Cambridge for teenagers. And he called that night and he said, it was awesome. You walk in and they ask you to tell your pronouns. And he started talking about this gender non-binary thing. And I went in the writer's room the next day and I said, there's this, we got to all understand this. And one of the other writers, again, Willie Reale, said, yeah, 
I was at an event in New York and I met this person and they told me they were, the term they used was gender queer, they're gender non-binary, we can have them come in and talk to us. So that person came in and talked to us and we realized we'd been looking for a way to introduce a character who externally would not seem like Axe, but in whom Axe would recognize himself. Mm. And so the idea of making that character gender non-binary, but Axe is equal in every way, uh, just seemed like a great thing that the audience wouldn't see it coming. And then of course we did love the idea of being able to portray an underrepresented group, but in a way, exactly as you're saying, it wasn't about the fact of the person being underrepresented. Mm. It was about, hey, this exceptional person, we're gonna bring them onto the show, we're not gonna run from what this means, but we're not gonna hit you over the head with it. And then we found magic in that we found Asia Kate Dillon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're so good in that show. It's incredible. They're the best. Yeah. Just it, amazing. Is it also a comment, I mean, you were talking in the beginning about Westerns and some of the great Westerns are like the old lions versus the new gunslingers. And- well, The gunslinger thing is hard, I would say, that is hardwired into everything we do. Yeah. I mean, in Rounders, they talk about gunslingers that we describe poker players that way. That that uh, knockout guys is a west is a modern western mm-hmm. in Montana. That that is, you know, the bad sheriff is wearing a hat, a cowboy hat, in, in knockout guys. And there's no doubt that we're constantly thinking of those archetypes because the one movie we didn't mention is Magnificent Seven, right? Obviously, we yeah. all saw Seven Samurai later and understood why that was the superior film. Yeah. But to David and me, James Coburn throwing knives represents <laughs> the ultimate sort of cool male archetype <laughs> from the McQueen kind of school, right? And then McQueen in that movie and Yul Brenner. And we've definitely played out, you know, that scene when the kid comes in because he wants to be part of the group and Yul Brenner just fucks with him by closing his hands and doing that whole thing. Yeah. We've played that out in everything we've ever done, for sure. Well, uh, Damian Lewis, I mean, he, he literally played Steve McQueen in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. He does bear a uh, you know, stri- striking resemblance. I, yeah, he really does. So he's got that kind of that swagger in um, yes. Billions versus Paul, who's you know the. Although uh, people from the the you know that district are they're superstars too. All the you know district. The, so the DA is in New York is really having a moment. How much <laughs> are they involved in? I mean, Jesus. We I mean, we did our research well. The U.S. Attorney's Office and now yeah. both characters, the Attorney General of State. But we, yeah, we we did our research by talking. About I it. feel like we when still the, talk to lawyers and all that. When the show started, I didn't have. Now with Trump and everything, and there's there's DAs on television every single night. So now I know more. I, I have more of an awareness of the Southern District well, sure. of, of New York than I yeah, ever but did. The Southern District is where Preet Bharara was and we were as I, you know we definitely spoke to Preet and had dinners with him and um, got to pick his brain. Do you ever get in trouble if you put things in the show and, pe- and, and you have to thinly veil it? You know people are only annoyed if you leave them out. <laughs> Despite <laughs> what they may say. That's so funny. I love it. Um, are, it, it will the show be um, continuing or do you look for, I can't say anything, you know, I mean, do you, do you, where do you look for uh, a resolving? I mean, any great show, do you have the ending in your head? Even if you don't. Dave and I have, we understand where we're going. And how does the, I mean, I have to ask like how with, if the, with the election and if the stock market, I mean, is that something that impacts the show or not now we're filming now this season and that's not i mean we're not there's no coronavirus in the show <laughs> well no sometimes on shows it, it's almost a mistake to start commenting on you know the parents lose all their money and they move in with, and now they have to move in with the kids you know so it's it's not going to happen they're still they'll they'll maintain their social identities well people will watch the show and see <laughs> Fair enough. I do want to ask, we have showrunners on, and I love to ask showrunners, what are three shows that you watched in the last year that you're obsessed with? I can, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, the, the, the Crown, mm. for me, is like everything in the world. I just love The Crown. Uh, and uh, I loved Mindhunter. I'm so sad Mindhunter is not coming back. I just love that show. And then I loved uh, Ugly Delicious, Dave Chang's show. Oh, yeah. Netflix has some really interesting non-scripted. Yeah. Cool. So that's three. I'd say those three I love. Uh, you also recommended a couple books. Uh, uh, Paul Mazursky's Show Me the Magic, which is a great book. 
Uh, oh, it's fantastic. That's a fantastic book. And uh, yeah, I was pals with Paul. He was a wonderful person. And uh, I'm going to get a blink of an eye. I had, I, I, I have a... Th- oh, Walter Murch's book is so good. I, I know. That was that caught my eye. I don't. I haven't read it. So I'm looking... It's, oh, you'll love it. And you will love it. As a filmmaker, you'll love it. It's really I, yeah. special. I like any movie uh, book. Um, and Lumet's book is the. I mean, Lumet's book is perfect. Also, yeah, making Lum- movies. His is good. They're they're all good. I like Ilya Kazan's, Kazan's book. Is yeah, really good. Kazan's I love book. Uh, although he doesn't give m- many other people credit. Um, I I'm a big um, Joe Mankiewicz fan. So anything about him, Billy Wilder. I, I, I like anything about him. I mean, you guys, all Mankiewicz's are good with you guys. That's <laughs> part of the whole thing. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. The um, are you a Patty Chayefsky fan at all? Do you have any writers of, of like course. that are that that? Uh, I mean, like I like watching Network, even though it's totally. So the dialogue is so overblown, but I love that's kind of what oh, I love about still, it. Spectacular. Um, Faye Dunaway is so good in that movie. Yeah. Um, I would, I'm Mamet, Mam, David Mamet, you know, is the sort of for, for, for me. Yeah. Levinson, Levinson and Mamet and the Comb Brothers and Quentin um, and Spike Lee are probably, you know, the people who, in a way, were like the biggest. Dialer and and I you know and Oliver Stone also from mm. mm-hmm. as a as a writer uh, certainly had a huge impact I think yeah I go back to the uh, the past and I I don't know I I sort of get get on a, a jag and then I watch all this person's movies and then I move up to to someone else or you know did, were you a Parasite fan this me, year me too oh, and I I will say sorry like I love Preston Sturges and I love Billy Wilder and William Wilder like I mean I could we could, you know, Sweet Smell of Success is also as good a movie as for dialogue. Like if people want to go and watch something older. Yeah. And a movie I recommend on something like this that you've seen, but most people haven't is William Wyler's movie, um, Dodsworth. Oh yeah. That's, it's so funny. So many men love Dodsworth. What is it about? Really? Oh true? my God. Yes. That I, lo- I like never come across anybody. I mean, a few friends of mine, Glenn Kenny, but most people, don't love that movie. Oh my god! Why do men love that movie? <laughs> and now I'm sort of fascinated. It's like it's like why I love uh, the Heartbreak Kid. Wait, who's come on this podcast and mentioned Dodsworth? Uh, well, I know Jeff Garland. It's his favorite film. Ah, are you serious? Yes. Gar, I love Garland. Call I, him right now. My podcast. I didn't know that. You got to text I him. Have- Say I, I I texted him last night. I'm texting him now about just this. Text say <laughs> Jeff. I'm talking with Liana. She just said, "Dodsworth, go." <laughs> oh, that is amazing. He and I have to do. Maybe we're going to have to do a Dodsworth podcast together. Me and Jeff, just dedicated to Dodsworth. Uh, Josh Olson, the writer, Dodsworth. Really? Is, oh my god! Oh my god! I'm just like, what is it with you guys? Dodsworth. <laughs> it's a good movie. I like Walter Houston. It's very sad. You know, Oh, it's incredible. The mean woman ruins his life. Yeah. Oh, yeah it's terrible. And the guy on a walk, I mean, I guess the guy's on a walkabout in a guy <laughs> in a where you couldn't be on a walkabout, you know? Yes. And Mary Astor too. Uh, she's pretty uh she's pretty great. Uh anyway, uh Brian, this has been so much fun. Please yes. come back anytime. Where do you hang out in New York? So if anybody wants to stalk you, do you have any bars or places you frequent? Yeah, Twitter. They can find me there. <laughs> and that's at Brian Koppelman, yes? Yes, at Brian Koppelman yes. on Twitter. Well, Brian, Alrighty. we know how busy you are right now because you're show running a yes. huge hit on Showtime. So we can't thank you enough for coming on. Thank you. My absolute pleasure. Totally. You're welcome and back whenever. About, thank you. Now I'm going to go think about why uh, guys love Dodsworth. <laughs> if you want Yeah, thank you so much, thank Brian. We'll you. see you next time. Thanks. Have a great day. Bye. So long. Bye. Oh, that was fun. Yeah, it was a blast. Yeah, nice, nice guy. Oh my god, awesome. I could talk I could talk movies all day long. It's funny, we were talking before, he a lot of his films are about men, very masculine films, but yes. he's a total sweetheart. You know, he just came on, you can tell he loves, loves, loves this business. Yeah. You know? And offers such great advice too, yeah. you know, which is so important. But ultimately all the advice in the world comes down to, like he said, you have to sit there and you do and you have to do it. And mm-hmm. that's the hardest Thing of thing of all, you just have to sit there for four hours and turn your phone off. And I really resonated too with him talking about the fact that you don't need permission to do it. You shouldn't mm-hmm. wait for someone else's validation or affirmation because 
a lot of times, like you were just saying, the difference between things getting made is who's actually doing it, you know? Right. And I, well, I feel like you need, you've got to give yourself so many, you know, inspirations. And so when, when somebody like Brian recommends a movie or talks about a Western or says the Magnificent Seven, then you, it makes you want to, you know, you, you want to watch it. And it, I feel like you need so much encouragement these, mm-hmm. these days too, you know, with, so when somebody you admire recommends something, that makes you want to see that and then you can maybe find something or incorporate it into your, you know, into your work. Yeah, Julia Cameron, who he mentioned, wrote Mm -hmm. that book, The Artist's Way, and she talks about, like, the well. Like, you have to be filling your well before you can create because you have to be drawing inspiration from somewhere. So, like, you do have to be watching things and, you know, a lot of our listeners, our filmmakers, actors, whatever, if you're not immersed in it, you're not going to have what you need to produce, that's what, well, I think, and I, I go back to the conversation, remember, that I talked about a couple of weeks ago where I spoke to the actor, and he said, well, I, I, I think the person would be flattered if I never signed anything <laughs> they did. And, I don't know. I don't know uh, about that. And I, I, I just never, th- I, I always get, I gain confidence by, um, you know, by watching. Oh, one last thing I wanted to mention, very important life lesson I got this week, mm-hmm. which is interesting in watching all of Brian's vines and kind of, and you sort of think about where do I get inspiration? And as you know, I go to a dance class four days a week. I went into my uh, dance teacher and we were talking about something and all of a sudden he was he was talking about the dance number and he said, you know, it's good, but remember, don't dance it like it's the first time you're dancing. Mm. You've done this a hundred times. And I thought, my God, that's such a wonderful, and I translated it to my life and, you know, I've got an upcoming pitch and it's like, yeah, it's not, don't do things as if it's the first time right. you've done it. You know, if you have to make a call or go on a date or do anything that you feel a little stressed out about, do it as if it's the hundredth time you've done it, not the first time. Do you, it's funny because you, among the actors still working today, you have one of the most immersive or the most extensive filmographies. Is that something you have to remind yourself of? Because I would assume oh, I never look. Yeah, <laughs> but I'm more in terms of when action gets called. Do you feel like you need to remind yourself? Oh my gosh, I've been working for decades. Or does it does it feel new each time? Yeah, because it's always. I mean, I feel it's very much like a, a a carpenter where you just you have to go in and do the best job mm-hmm. that you can for them. And so that's the only thing that's stressful for me. I just go to it and I try to. I've got incredibly high standards of. Right what I would like to do to make it, you know, really good. And then I also have multiple things going on, my own writing or, you know, I'm working on the book, I'm just a script, I got a pitch, I got a you know, yeah. So we're, we're all incredible multitaskers this year and we're doing social media. Right. I mean, my goodness, there's a lot. I mean, the, the hardest thing is just like there's – and you have to go home at night and watch all the new shows and all the new movies – so uh, it, that the time management is what I find is the hardest thing yeah. as, as you get older and 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 going between being a fogey of like I can't go anywhere I got to work on my work versus you know you feel as if well I only have one life and I could be out there and be entertaining and right. all those kind of things. Well, such a fun show today. And um, again, thank you, Brian, for coming on. We'd love to have you back whenever. Of course, you guys know Billions is on Showtime. Make sure you're watching. And uh, just we're very excited. March is dedicated to all female writers, actors, and filmmakers. So in honor of Women's History, as it should be, we will be featuring all female guests next week. But we are taking next week off. We're taking next week off. And then uh, the rest of March, all female guests, uh, authors... Uh, great female comedian Kathy yeah. Griffin's going to be on. So Kathy we're... Griffin is coming to this studio. It's going to be fun. We're going to have to fasten your seatbelts. Gird our loins, Ileana. She uh, <laughs> she is one of the quickest witted people. It's going to be. I'm excited to see you interview her particularly. I'm excited too. I've yeah. known Kathy for a long time, it's fun. so uh, I'm very excited yes. about it, and uh, I feel a shift. Yes, shift that uh, shift in the environment with uh, women and qu- equality and everything on the horizon. Absolutely. Um, I want to thank you, Jeff, and uh, thank everyone for listening. Uh, if you have any comments, please let us know. 
And as we always say, everyone's life is like a movie with a beginning, a middle, and an end. Today, today was like Tommy, Western. And Dodsworth. Dodsworth, <laughs> poker. It's all in there. I hope you had a great time listening. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day. Bye. Thanks for tuning into The Film Scene with Ileana Douglas, airing exclusively on the Popcorn Talk Network. We bring you this show for free because we're just as passionate and borderline obsessed with film as you are. And it would mean a lot if you would please subscribe to our podcast and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It takes five minutes to review the show, but it helps other film junkies find the show and continue to spread a love of classic and contemporary film. For guest inquiries or live bookings, you can email me, Jeff Graham, at guests at afterbuzztv.com. That's G-U-E-S-T-S at A-F-T-E-R-B-U-Z-Z dot com. For more incredible film content, check us out online at The Popcorn Talk, and we'll see you after the credits.